It is easy for us to forget how strange biblical religion was in the ancient world. Our ancestors in the faith had insights about God and God's relationship to the cosmos that were revolutionary in the broader context of the ancient Near East. And the uniqueness of the biblical understanding of God is on full display in the creation account we heard from the book of Genesis this morning. I suspect that the familiarity of this passage and its length blinds us to its novelty. Indeed, its rhythmic poetry, there was evening and there was morning, is more likely to lull us to sleep than jolt us into recognition. And yet it is this very rhythm that points us to one of the ways that the biblical understanding of God was unusual in the ancient world. Most other ancient religions imagined that the universe came into being as the result of a dramatic conflict, a pitched battle between the forces of chaos and the forces of creation. What's more, these other traditions assumed that the battle was ongoing, that the cosmos was always a hair's breadth away from annihilation. But by contrast, the creation account in the book of Genesis narrates a very different kind of process. In our creation account, the rhythmic repetition of that resonant phrase, there was evening and there was morning, suggests that chaos is being tamed, that chaos is being brought into order by the divine will. Rather than resulting from a battle between creation and chaos, the biblical account reveals that the cosmos came into being because both creation and chaos are subordinate and subject to the creator God. And this is further illustrated by the way that process of creation is described. For instance, the biblical writer tells us that God created two lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, the sun and the moon. Now we can quibble with the science of this and note that the moon does not generate but notice that our ancestors in the faith believed that the sun and the moon are part of creation. Other ancient religions posited that the sun and the moon were gods themselves, that they and other natural forces related to the world independently and of their own volition. The biblical account, on the other hand, reveals that Everything we see and experience, and everything we do not see and experience, is part of creation. Which actually isn't all that far from the scientific understanding of the universe. There are parts of the cosmos that are that we are able to perceive more clearly, that we are able to pay closer attention to, but nothing exists outside creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, human beings, animals, black holes, <laughs> all are part of the created order. 
no matter how significant they may seem in our estimation. And by the logic of this creation account, which is at the very foundation of our faith, the only thing that exists, the only thing that is outside creation is the Creator. And in this sense, the Genesis account reveals a God that is ineffable. A God that does not conform to our expectations. A God that is beyond our capacity to understand. And yet, strangely, the creation account also tells us that we are created in the image of this God. Moreover, it is clear that we are meant to pay very close attention to this observation. After the writer tells us that God decided to create human beings in the image of God, we get this weird little excursus that's unlike anything else in the passage. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them three times in the space of two verses. We are told that human beings are created in the image of God. The writer of Genesis uses this record-scratch moment to reveal something essential and deeply paradoxical. That we bear the image of a God who is beyond our understanding. We bear the image of a God who is beyond our understanding. That's really weird. What on earth are we supposed to do with this? What does it mean to be created in the image of something that is, well, outside creation? Of course, people of faith have been trying to sort out what it means to be created in the image of God for a long time. And some have speculated that bearing the image of God refer refers to our physicality. This is probably why there are all those images of God as a dude with a white beard, right? But I wonder if bearing God's image has less to do with appearance and more to do with our, our capacity. The ways we do things that God does. And what does God do according to Genesis? God creates. God perceives a formless void and creates something out of nothing. God fashions the universe, not for any practical purpose, but because God has the desire and the will to create. And human beings seem to have the same impulse, don't they? Our inclination is to create something when we see nothing. The evidence abounds, even in our everyday lives. Look at the doodles in the margins of your notebook, or that impulse to stack stones on one another, or the fact that we have skyscrapers. <laughs> Kids are thrilled to show their parents what they have made. 
Indeed, one of the higher compliments you can pay someone is to tell them how creative they are. But there is a shadow side to this creative impulse. I noted a moment ago that Christian theology does not believe that the act of creation served any practical purpose for God. God did not have to create the universe. At the same time, we do not believe that God created simply for the sake of creating, as if it were an academic exercise. Let's see what we can do. Rather, classical Christian theology suggests that God created the universe for the sake of love. As we will hear in our Eucharistic prayer, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. God's creative will, in other words, is it's tempered, it's shaped, it's focused by God's love. And for a long time, human beings who bear the image of God, we saw the value of tempering our creative impulses. We created things for the glory of God, for instance, trying to remember the ineffability of the one in whose image we are created. We tried to inject some humility into our creative impulses, aware that creativity for its own sake could potentially lead to destruction. And this begs the question, what happens when we begin to create simply for the sake of creating? Earlier this week, a group of technologists and experts in artificial intelligence, or AI, issued a brief but dire warning. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI, they wrote, should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Doesn't get much starker than that, does it? And what's fascinating to me is that so many of the people who issued this warning are responsible for the existence of AI. They're the ones who created it. And this is not the first time this has happened. Many of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, for instance, famously warned against the dangers of nuclear weapons after, you know, inventing nuclear weapons. I don't mean to be glib about this. It's hard to be glib about the extinction of humanity. And I don't mean to disparage these scientists who seem legitimately fearful about what they have brought into the world. But I think their fear, I think all of this is emblematic of what happens when our creative impulse is not tempered by humility. This is what happens when we forget that for all our creative powers, we are also part of creation.
The only way that we will stop creating things that will potentially cause the annihilation of humanity is if our creativity is shaped by humility. And I think that this might be what Trinity Sunday is all about. Despite the valiant and, frankly, misguided attempts of preachers throughout the centuries, the Trinity, that doctrine that God is expressed in the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity is not a concept in need of explanation. It is, rather, as St. Augustine pointed out, the starting point for our faith. And this is because the doctrine of the Trinity points us to the fact that even though we bear the image of God, God is in so many ways beyond our understanding. At the same time, the Trinity also provides a very clear framework for how to use our creative powers with humility. To paraphrase the words of St. Paul, the Trinity indicates that the way we contribute to the world must be motivated by grace and love and communion with one another. We are never supposed to do anything for its own sake. But most of all, the Trinity reminds us that we are creatures called to humble ourselves before the God who created us out of love. <laughs>